Hello, welcome to the Next Step Podcast. My name is Wes, and I'm here with Pastor Rob. How's it going? I'm good. How about you? I'm doing well. Okay. Doing well. So, It's a yes. rainy day in Missouri. And kind of cold and wintry. It's in that fixing to be miserable. Yeah. If it'll turn into snow, that'd be nice. They said, what Doug Hedy said, big fat snowflakes late tonight. Mm, interesting. That. So I hope he's right. All right. So uh, we are moving along. We took a couple weeks off. Um, a couple weeks off. I Because I had to take a couple weeks off. Yes, indeed. In this time of, I had to take a couple weeks off. Because I was in quarantine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Since when you're sick and can't get out of bed. Sure. You got to take a couple weeks off. You have to take a couple weeks off. Um, But we are back at it with Daniel, part two of chapter two. Chapter two, part two. Uh, Yeah. For a recap, listen to the last episode that we released because it's about part one. Um, Yeah. Because we are going through a series in Daniel. Yep. Um, We're going to talk about chapter two, part two. And this is the interpretation of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream yes. by Daniel via God. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's really from God, but yeah, yes. through Daniel. Uh, so we're just going to jump right into it. Uh, okay. Looking through, uh, you sent me over the notes, so I was looking through them a little bit more detail this time. One thing that you had a line in there uh, that immediately sparked interest to me because it's a hotly debated thing philosophically even outside of the realm of Christianity is the yeah. idea of free will. So yeah. one of the lines you had in there was, uh, God is sovereign, but still allows us a degree of freedom. Um, is it possible for us to actually understand the degree of which we have freedom? Um, because that's it seems like such a heady idea. Yeah. And then it's seemingly in conflict that God's will and sovereignty is always in control. And at the same time, we have any freedom at all. It's yeah. seemingly in conflict. It doesn't us. seem like they would work together. Well, <clears throat> one, I don't think we can fully understand it, um, which is actually a good thing. And it really is. It's cause for more praise of God because I don't want to serve a God <laughs> that I can really completely wrap my mind around sure. and understand. So he really, I mean, he is so other. And that's, part, I mean, that's part of even the definition of holiness is otherness, mm-hmm. right? So... He is just so other that there are things about God that we cannot understand. And I think that that will continue on throughout all eternity, even when we're in heaven and we see him face to face, right? Uh, We still won't fully comprehend and we'll discover more and we'll be discovering more for all eternity because that's how eternally awesome and magnificent he is. So, um, but yeah, that whole idea of God's sovereignty and man's free will is, it's the kind of the classic ongoing debate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the problem is in the term free will itself. Like, what do you even really mean by free will? Mm-hmm. Because most of the time, I think people have slightly different definitions of what they mean by free will. So when you start talking about free will, it's like you're talking about one thing, he's talking about another thing, we're sort of debating or discussing or whatever. <clears throat> we're not going to make a lot of headway because we're talking about two different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to carefully define it. I think a much better uh, way to think about it rather than free will, because you really don't see the concept of free will in the Bible, uh, but you do see the concept of responsibility. Hmm. So we have God is sovereign and in control of literally everything, and the Bible teaches that everywhere. 
Um, but you also have this idea that man is responsible, A, to obey, and B, he's responsible for his sin. He'll be, will be held account for our sin. So, uh, and Scripture teaches those, both of those things. And how they work together, I don't know. You know, how does God's sovereignty and then my, you know, because we as humans, we know that we make decisions and those decisions are real. I'm, I'm actually making that decision. I'm not a robot. I'm not a you know puppet on a string. I'm not an automaton going through a, you know, pre-programmed procedure. Um, we really have real decisions and they have real results. And yet at the same time, God is sovereign and in control of everything. And um, you kind of there's a sense in which I think you just have to say, okay, mm-hmm. uh, because we're really not going to you know, understand it. I think it was John MacArthur one time that said, if anyone ever says they figure out how those two things go together, they're either crazy or they're a heretic. Right. <laughs> because you can't figure it out. And, and that's okay because Scripture teaches both. So I don't know how they fit together, but I know they fit together perfectly and beautifully. And can we not just accept that God is wise enough and omniscient enough and powerful enough for both of those to exist side by side? Mm-hmm. I mean, how can you... I heard, a, I heard a pastor one time talk about how, like, one reason we have problems with that is, like, the difference between Eastern and Western culture okay. and philosophy. And, like, at the time, the Eastern culture of Judaism, because Judaism is a Middle East yeah. culture, mm-hmm. would not have had a problem with the seeming contradiction or the yeah. seeming conflict they wouldn't have had a problem with two things being true at the same time yeah but in the west we are much more like concrete black and white logical we Lo- want everything yeah. to work out and so we, we want a system for everything we have a, yeah. a more philosophical problem with these things being in conflict whereas yeah. the original writers the original readers of the scriptures yeah and God himself doesn't have a problem with that because I think the conflict is in our minds. Oh, yeah. Not yeah, in The his. conflict isn't in Scripture because it yes. te- teaches both. Um, you know, it's just like, and the other thing is, if God is powerful enough to speak the universe into existence, right? Let there be light and there was light, you know, let there be this, you know. If he's powerful enough to do that, then how can he, how can we even begin to question, A, his sovereignty about anything, um, and how can we not clearly see our responsibility in Scripture? You know, um, you know. In fact, even there's a sense in which the gospel itself is a command. In Mark one fifteen, you know, the summary of of Jesus' message is repent and believe, and those are two actions that you're told to do. Um, so there is that responsibility of obedience, and and all throughout the New Testament, there's over a thousand commands. I think it's like eleven hundred. I don't know the exact number, but there's over a thousand specific commands in the New Testament. And if we weren't responsible to obey them, if we were just automatons, there would be no need for those because we're doing whatever we've been pre-programmed to do. So, uh, but we're not robots. So, um, you know, it's we're. And why else would would Paul plead with us to obey and to do this and please do that, you know, mm-hmm. and train your mind and train, discipline yourself for godliness and all of those things if if you didn't have, make real decisions. So, again, it, to, it's not a problem for me that God is sovereign and yet I'm still responsible to make, to be obedient and to pursue him. Right. I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. And people that do, well, I, 
there's a part of me that says, I don't know what to tell you, but <laughs> there's a part of me that wants to just say, get over it. But it, it's clearly in scripture both. So both are true. All right. That's, yeah. And I think it is so hard for us to step outside of our own perception of yeah. how reality should work. And I think you almost have to like put yourself in God's shoes a little bit to try and understand like, oh, I'm not supposed to understand this. Yeah, yeah. you know, like it's okay if you don't understand everything. Yeah, would, and that's yeah. very difficult for a lot of people. It's a it's hard to admit that you can't figure it out too. That's the other sure. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because I can't figure it out, a doesn't mean it's well. First of all, it doesn't mean it's wrong because I can't figure out how it works, mm-hmm. right? And it also doesn't mean that I can't accept it. Sure. You know. And that kind of leads into our next topic. Pride. Yeah. Pride. Everyone's favorite oh my thing. Yeah. Pride. Uh it seems to be at the root <coughs> Pride seems to be at the root of a lot of humanity's issues. I would say all of humanity's issues. Okay. Yeah. All of humanity's issues. I mean issues. it goes all the way back to the garden when when the serpent said, You can be like God. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I can be like God? I like the sound of that. Yeah. It seems like a lot of sin spawns out of pride, even fake humility. Absolutely. Which you talked Absolutely. about a little bit. Taking pride in your own humility. Um, which you can do, I think, half, maybe not half, I think much of the time when you do that, you're not even aware of it. You're not necessarily trying to. It's just to. so, I think it's so instinctual and so just part of how our flesh is wired. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just toward that, you know, and it's just like a, a thing I heard. I heard years ago and I've repeated it a hundred times because it's so, I think, good is that the proud man thinks he's humble, but the humble man thinks he's proud. Yeah. And so if you wherever in your life you think, oh, I'm being very humble right there at that moment, you have just shifted into being prideful in that area or about that thing yeah. whatever that would be so don't like, even wow i did a good thing oh dang it yeah well there was no. a whole you know this there was a whole tv show one time it was a very popular show at the time i won't mention it because it's not a good show to watch but um one of the main characters spent the whole episode trying to do a truly selfless act and they couldn't do it because they kept feeling good about themselves after they did this you know they finally mm-hmm. said i'm going to do something that's selfish selfless and uh so they gave $100 to a homeless person thinking, well, that's, you know, that's a good thing, right? And then they're like, I gave $100 to it. Oh, you know, they realized I'm now I'm proud of the thing that I did. So it was like the struggle, mm-hmm. which I think is indicative of the struggle to, to to truly be humble and then not be prideful about your humility. Sure. <laughs> so. Um, yeah. So like that struggle is really real. How can we fight against that? Again, it's like what I said. Proud. Yeah, I think it's like what I said on the in the sermon is that. We just have to, re- well, first of all, we need to remember um, that we're sinners, right? Um, we, we tend to minimize our own sin because of our pride. And so the more highly I think of myself is usually going to be an inverse proportionate to just meditating on my need for Christ. Mm-hmm. So the more I think about my sinfulness, the more it highlights my need for Christ and the fact that he chose me and, you know, he did everything. I didn't do anything. I didn't contribute anything to my own salvation. So the more we meditate on that and keep that in the front of our mind, rather than pushing our sin off to the side and not thinking about that or whatever, 
Um, that helps us to remember we have nothing to be prideful about, really. Yeah. I mean, if you're really honest and you look in the you know the spiritual mirror of the Bible, it will remind you of your just utter sinfulness and your depravity and you know how desperately wicked you are outside of Christ without Him, and it's only because of what He did that you're not still that. Yeah. And on the and your flesh, you are. You know that that's the struggle of Romans seven, right? It's like you know. I was just oh, about man. to bring that up. Like, yeah. I see it in myself all the time, struggling to, like, I know exactly what I want to be like and, like, the things I need to change to be more like. Yeah. And every time I end up doing the same thing. And it's a hard thing to... Wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of flesh. And so, yeah, I think that's the... That's really the thing is just remember the gospel. Mm-hmm. You know, go back to the gospel, meditate on that. And the gospel, of course, it begins with God and who he is and what he has done. But it goes immediately to my sin and my need for him. And, you know, it's just like a, a an honest look at just the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. You have to admit that you've broken every single one of them. Right. And that means you deserve death, punishment, hell, wrath, fury, you know, eternal torment. You really do deserve that. And I think part of the problem is as Americans, maybe just as, I mean, as humans, obviously, but just the, the, the way our culture is in America in de- trying to deal with sin, we don't, we're really good at convincing ourselves that we're not really all that bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many times have you said, oh, he's a pretty good guy. Yeah, I like him. Yeah. Well, you don't know he's not. He might wear a really good mask, and he might do some things that are... And maybe relative to other people from our worldly view might be a decent person, but in... Relative to the axe murderer down the street, he's a great guy. Sure. But when, you know, Acts 17 says that God will judge us according to the righteous standard of Christ, Mm -hmm. and man, so there you go. One, literally one sin, you're done. Yeah. And, and, and but we don't think that way. We we think in terms of um, our American culture has trained us, and it's even and it's getting worse and worse. Has trained us to say, well, this isn't really a sin; it's a choice. Um, you know, abortion isn't murder; it's my body. No, abortion is murder, just straight up. Mm-hmm. You know, it is the willful, intentional destruction of another human being. Yeah, that's murder. And you see the. And yet we talk about it. We call it everything but. And you see it twist around where people can be okay with abortion but against the death penalty and all sorts of for crazy stuff. yeah someone that has raped and murdered people and you're like no we we want to keep this person alive but the unborn child isn't even a person and it's ju- it just becomes so twisted and yeah in sin that reality around you becomes something that it's yeah. not you know? Well, and even just uh, the the medical, I say the med- the psychological medical community, in their diagnostic and statistic their diagnostic manual that you know talks about disorders and things like that. Well, things that used to be a disorder is now not a disorder, mm-hmm. and things that we used to call sin is just a disorder now, or sure. you know, I or s- confusion or whatever. Well, no, we 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 don't call anything sin yeah. anymore. I started watching um, a documentary about 
on its surface, I was like, oh, this looks interesting. I like this filmmaker. He's made some other good documentaries. And it was about this woman that started researching serial killers and uh, their essential, essentially their psychological backgrounds and what causes them to be violent. Yeah. And I'm like, that's interesting. I bet I can predict a couple of those things. And I did. It's, you know, abuse, like pretty terrible backgrounds. But then they start getting into, she's in an interview with somebody, with I think Bill O'Reilly, and he mentioned something about evil. And she goes, well, evil is a spiritual concept. It's a religious concept. I'm not dealing with that. And I go, oh, this is where she's coming from. I'm out. Yeah. Because I immediately saw it as, oh, it's trying to excuse the things that these people have done. Yeah. Well, and we're all professional excusers, mm-hmm. right? It's like, well, you know, the reason I did that, yeah, that was wrong, but the reason I did that was because of this, because of that, you mm-hmm. know, because of what you did. Yeah. You really caused it, you know. We want we want to push all of the responsibility for sin on other yeah. people when truthfully it's on us. You don't need other people, you know. As James says, you know, it's when we're tempted it comes from within yeah so yeah is there really quickly is there a difference between being proud or fighting against being proud and then like making sure you're not necessarily hating yourself in like a unhealthy like i'm depressed way is there a different or like where's that balance between like respecting yourself as a person person and taking care of yourself yeah and thinking you're great yeah well yeah i mean obviously um you know there's the thing there's so many pieces of that puzzle like the whole idea of self-esteem is a form of pride Mm -hmm. um you know so we need to have a a biblical a right biblical um assessment of ourselves which tells us that we're sinners in need of christ Uh, but the thing is 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 we can is your pride can demonstrate itself um, in in multiple paths, right? Either look how great I am, or oh woe is me, everybody hates me, and you know this whatever thing. But that's also a form of pride because you're trying to get people to pay attention, to pay you. attention to you, mm. and look at you, and think of you in a in the way that you want them to think of you, and you're trying to form that. And um, so again, it's it's a form of pride. And it, you know, that's why you need to have a right biblical understanding, right? You know, so mm, um, that everybody hates me, I'm going to eat dirt. Oh, no, no. You're trying to get somebody to give you accolades, mm. you know, really is what you're doing. There. Yeah. So um, the whole self-esteem thing, I mean, yeah, you don't want to beat yourself up, but you need to rightly confess the truth of who you are. Yeah. You know, again, there's that pride. I think highly of myself so i want others to think highly of myself so yeah yeah so kind of getting back into like kind of the global aspect of the way this this half of the chapter really is it's very like grand because it's covering history sweep of history yeah in this one dream um but for in a more practical way there's sometimes a mentality of trying to keep a foot in both the spiritual future and an earthly future. Okay. And um, there's also sometimes the idea of abandoning the world because we're like, it's a sinking ship. Why even pay attention to it? Um, 
So how do we find a balance between spreading the gospel and working towards the sanctification of the world around us and not becoming too invested in the day-to-day events of the world around us, yeah. not getting too bogged down in the minutia of American politics or uh, social things going social on around us? Like, and... how do we fight for what is right in those situations without getting too invested in it to the point where we're almost putting more stock in that yeah. than the the kingdom that will be coming. Yeah, and you know, that's part of the issue with a lot of this whole social justice stuff where people wrongly think that the um the pursuit of social justice of the pursuit of good for other people becomes the definition of the gospel and that's not what the gospel is. Mm-hmm. Um, we live in a broken world and it will be broken. That doesn't mean you just like sit back and don't care about that. Uh, but first and foremost, we're called to li- to repent and you know believe, right? We're called to that we're called to believe the gospel, yeah. not this other something else. And and there will always be competing other gospels, you know, th- that will always be the case. Um but I think you know, we, we have to remember what we're called to as believers, and it's the pursuit of sanctification. Um, it's being more and more Christ-like, and, you know, sharing the gospel is central to that. You know, if somebody says they're a Christian and they have no interest in evangelism, then I'm going to have to question whether or not you're a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a struggle for all of us, you know, starting that conversation or whatever. But, um, but yeah, it's, I don't know that it's really one foot in a spiritual future and an earthly future. Um, I, I don't think we completely ignore and step away from that. Uh, but, you know, first and foremost is uh, knowing Christ, making him known, right? And, yeah. the, and, and being a more holy individual. Being, uh, so, again, yeah, we should oppose moral evil, you know, and we should stand against that, and we should strive to dismantle that thing you know i mean we should we should strive for the uh, abortion being gone completely you mm-hmm. know not just more restrictions or whatever we should want it to be unthinkable uh and it's okay to work for that but we should also be striving for you know we, we every believer is called to evangelism every believer is called to um you know the fruits of the spirit you know yeah. every believer is called to you know set your mind on things above not on things of earth but again, when we're doing that, it's going to give us a passion and a drive to pursue other to pursue some of these other things. Yeah. But it's so easy to put the cart before the horse. Sure. You know, and think, well, it's all about you know ending uh, human trafficking, and that becomes the sole focus of your life. Yeah. Well, that's something that should end, right? That's yeah. a moral evil that we should be against, and and we should do what we can to stop it and to bring it to a conclusion. But if my life is nothing but that, and it's not about you know the spread of the gospel, it's not about how am I becoming a more holy person, how am I serving Christ through my church. If it's not those things, if if you become you can become very distracted. I think it brings us back to pride. I think people like being yeah. the enactor of justice. Yeah. Because uh, I've had conversations with this about with a bunch of different people, but. I think the reason you see so many people pushing so hard for justice right now, they don't want, like, due process. There's no, like, justice system, like, court system or what they want right now. 
It has to be. It's why people get canceled for doing bad stuff. Oh yeah, the cancel culture. Yeah, it's they want a facsimile of justice right away mm. because I think a lot of people don't believe there is cosmic justice that will come from God. Yeah, I think they think right now is the well, and time justice has to happen, or otherwise it's not going to. There's also a sense of that's. We want something tangible and practical and like I can see that I've done A, B and C. Right. Right. Um, so it's easy to say I rescued or I participated in five people being rescued out of out of uh, human trafficking last week. Whereas how do you evaluate um, your own spiritual growth? Right. You know, it's easier to go make a bunch of phone calls than it is to just go out and share the gospel with people. That's hard to do, you know. Even bringing up the gospel with your coworkers, the guy that you sit next to every day at work, sure, um, or that you work with, you know, they're in the the cubicle next to you, or however you however you work. Um, man, that's hard to bring that up and to start that conversation. But it's easy to go strive for justice in this or that, or go, yeah, you know, whatever. Um, but you know, you can go to Haiti and build a thousand homes and say, "I'm doing this." For the sake of the Lord, but not share the gospel with anybody. And you've really, what kind of impact did you make? You know, it's nice that those people have homes, but it'd be far better for you to go down there and share the gospel with a thousand people and build one home. Yeah. <laughs> you know, than build a thousand homes and not share with one person. Sure. So, you know, because that's the thing is when, I think when, when the gospel has actually changed you and when you're focused on that, it gives you a desire and it places in you. Not just a desire for sanctification, but a desire to tell others. Mm -hmm. If you have no desire to tell others, you need to do some serious soul searching. Right. So. Okay, so specifically, chapter two, the second half, we get Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the actual details of it. What is the purpose of Nebuchadnezzar specifically having this dream for him? Yeah. Is there a purpose for that? Because it lays out future kingdoms to come. It's a prophecy pointing towards Christ. Uh, What significance would it hold for Nebuchadnezzar himself to hear? Would he even understand? He should have, obviously. He um, and he seemed to respond rightly, right? You know, of course, we're looking at chapter three, and we're going to see what his real response was Mm -hmm. in chapter three. Um, even though what we see at the end of chapter two, it's like, oh yeah, he's saying, man, your God is a great God and all of that. But I think the purpose was to remind him or even just to tell him in the first place that, yeah, you've accomplished a lot, but this is all God that did this. You did not do this. And there will be something that comes after you. There will be a kingdom that comes after yours. Your kingdom will fall. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons for the the statue that he builds, the all gold statue, is to say, my kingdom will not fall. Yeah. You know, so he's trying to say, no, I'm more powerful than God. And so I think um, this was a reminder to him, right? Because the mindset that we all kind of have is this, I've earned it. Um, you know, I, we, you know, we, we want to accomplish this and earn that and get that promotion. And I want my checking account balance to be to a certain number and then I'll be successful. Or when I've got my you know X amount of dollars in my retirement account, then I have enough. And then I've arrived, you know, when I've paid off my home, when I've paid off my car, when, 
you know, when I have 3.5 children and a wife, you know, it's just we we have this vision of what it could, should be or could be. And I think Nebuchadnezzar looked at all he had accomplished and said, dude, I'm there. I have made it. And part of the purpose of the dream for him was to say, no, it was actually God doing all that through you. Mm. You know, so I, I, you know, I think, again, he was a very prideful, arrogant king. And, you know, you, you'll see that when when it is suggested that the, his people are not listening to him in chapter three, he flies into a raging fury, mm-hmm. you know, which he's done before when his wise men couldn't tell him his dream. He flew into a raging fury and said, kill them all. Yep. You know, so he sort of has that propensity toward if I don't get what I want exactly. Sure. I get upset. Okay, so we're going to move on to a couple questions that uh, people wrote in to us. So thank you uh, for writing these questions and submitting them. What would be missing from Daniel and the Scripture as a whole if Daniel 2's vision and interpretation was gone? Well, I mean, the, <laughs> the easy answer to that is that Scripture is perfect and Scripture is complete, and God intended for everything that's in there to be in there and nothing more and nothing less. You know, so it it wouldn't be the perfect word of God. If anything was missing. Yeah, if something was missing. But I think there's a, uh, this particular passage, the vision and the interpretation, really does show us um, God's control over the grand sweep and grand narrative of history. Um, It shows Christ and his kingdom coming and being set up and and being the dominant, you know, being the the kingdom. Um, So we wouldn't have as clear a picture of that if we didn't have this passage. So, you know, just showing us. And it's not so much. I mean, it it is, you know, it is Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and the Medes and Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. But it's not so much that. So it is that kingdoms will not stand, right? Mm-hmm. There will be a time when America's not here, if, even if the Lord tarries. And it sounds weird to say, yeah. you know, I would hope, but, you know, there will be a time when America's gone. You know, every country comes and goes and yeah. um, changes and things like that. Maybe a, a thousand years, maybe a few hundred years. But. Yeah. And, like, it's hard to think in the scheme of things, like, the countries that are around today have been around probably, like, the shortest amount of time than... Oh, Yeah some that existed like before all of this like the empires and and everything lasted for long long yeah. periods well, and of the time. roman empire was like i think 1600 years yeah i mean it, you look the, at even just the city of jerusalem itself has been around since i mean i don't even know exactly when it was time. founded but like long long time and it's still there today under different well actually less different circumstances now than they were 60 yeah. 70 years ago but um in the scheme of things we're just like a small section Lip. of a little section amongst a bunch of different yeah. little sections well you know? and and the whole point of of, Dan, of the daniel 2 vision is that the kingdom of god is superior to all of that yeah i mean that picture that the the image of you know, the rock not cut by human hands, which is obviously Jesus, growing, and then everything else blows away like chaff so that there's nothing left. Yeah. You know, just just shows you the dominance, um, the eternality, the majesty, the power of the kingdom of God over every other kingdom. Right. Um, which is, again, that's the whole point with Nebuchadnezzar. It's like, you think you've accomplished all this, but this was God that has accomplished all this. So, yeah. 
so I had the same question. Why is the Roman Empire described as kind of a divided kingdom? What it's, are the historical <coughs> well, they would for that? In, they would incorporate people that uh, they had conquered. So, um, like, the Jews were part of the Roman Empire, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a lot of different um, cultures and religions and everything that were a part of the Roman Empire. So they were... Um, they were unified, but their unity was sort of an imposed unity. Um, you know, so you have that strength and that weakness, right? The, the whole idea of the feet and the iron, which is strength, right? The strongest of the metals so far is iron, but then the clay is that crumble, is, you know, it's crumbling and iron and clay don't really mix and come together. Um, so you have like, you know, they're, they're, they had some really powerful strengths you know their military strength their laws their education their level of intellect all of that was you know very much a very strong thing but they were still weak and you know they're and morally very corrupt and um you know so many different peoples making them up so there was still that built-in weakness so and you'll also notice that the uh it was into that empire into that culture into that kingdom that the rock initially fell mm-hmm. you know and it broke up the feet and then you know the whole thing came tumbling down yeah so um but that but yeah it's it's just it's the roman empire is that particular so part of the part of the statue yeah so here's another question plainly speaking what is the kingdom of god yeah, and you know, different people will probably tell you different things about that, but uh, the short answer is the kingdom of God is the realm over which God is king, right? So any kingdom is the sphere of the authority of the king, and so the kingdom of God is here, it's now, it's everywhere. Um, but you know, specifically in the context of this, it's the kingdom over which Christ rules, and so there's really that that already but not yet in that, you know, the, the, the kingdom was inaugurated when Christ came and, you know, lived those 33 years, the, you know, the years of his life and ministry and then the death and the resurrection. So that's the inauguration of the kingdom. And, the ki- and, and Jesus is the king, right? Jesus is in charge. God is on his throne. Uh, so the kingdom is now, but then the kingdom won't be fully realized until Jesus returns, you know, so there's that already but not yet element of the kingdom. The kingdom is is now, but the kingdom is also future. Mm-hmm. So it's really both. Final question, I believe. Um, what is fellowship's belief concerning eschatology? Eschatology, for those that don't know, is uh, kind of how people view the end of the end. The end, the yeah, end basically, of the world, eschatology is a fancy word of saying end times. We don't have an official view. You know, you can look at our doctrinal statement and there's nothing about that there. And part of that is because there are so many different, it's so difficult to really track through all of that. And I think sometimes we approach, well, of course, prophecy is a large section of the Bible. So if you ignore all the the prophecy in the Bible, you're ignoring a a large percentage of the Bible. Uh, But we don't have an official position or statement. I mean, like we do, eschatology is not like, the inerrancy of Scripture, mm-hmm. or the deity of Christ, or the truth of the Trinity—you um, know those those different you know doctrines that we hold to be essential—because uh, it is open to interpretation. Um, and in fact, if you were to go around our church, you'll find a range of beliefs. You'll find people at one end of one spectrum and another end of another spectrum. You'll find a lot of people who have not really sat down and and done the. the it's a it's hard work to study. I would say I know a lot of Christians that 
don't really get into it. Typically, the default is whatever my pastor believes. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's that's typically the default, and um, and, and so there's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a, it's it's one of those things. Is there's a lot of pieces to that puzzle, but at the same time, if we approach uh, prophecy too much like a puzzle to be solved right or you know the pieces to all be put together in the perfect it's place, not like a riddle or a riddle yeah a riddle to be to be worked out um you can miss the point because it's all about jesus right mm-hmm. the point is that jesus is coming back um and it's not and and i think we want to make it about when and we want to look at all these different you know this means this and this this means, means this, this yeah. and this means this and then when this the happens locusts when this happens then this happens and then this happens and then Jesus comes back and we're you know man we're we're you know people talk all the time we'll say man we're so close to Jesus coming back it's like yeah every day we're a day closer to Jesus coming back <laughs> we are yeah. we're we're a day closer today than we were yesterday and we'll be a day closer tomorrow than we are today um but it, it it's just I, I think it's i mean it's there and so we should study it, and it, it's there for our benefit and for our edification as believers, absolutely. But again, it's one of those things that you can get so wrapped up in it that you're distracted from the task mm-hmm. of sharing Christ and growing in, in grace. Yeah. So, you know, again, fellowship doesn't have a, a specific position, and, um, you know, we can coexist with a variety of positions, Yeah. you know, as long as you're not crazy about it. I think it would be a really cool idea to have a few people on— this that have different, some different, different viewpoints and, and kind of discuss that, yeah. it, um, yeah. because I think it's something that's really interesting and yeah, um, it can affect how you view the world around you and how you interact with the world around you as a Christian. Yeah, well, and it does actually affect even how you interpret other things in the Bible. Yeah, there are some things that that interpretation is affected by an eschatological view more mm-hmm. than what maybe you realize. Right. You know, and then there's there's just again there's so many little details like one of the uh, one of the details that is very interesting is um, the date of the book of Revelation. When was Revelation written? Right. I mean, I grew up hearing 92, 93 A.D., you know, late late dating of Revelation. That was what I always heard. Um, well, there are people that will tell you that it was written in the late 60s. That was late 1960s? Well, not the, <laughs> no, it's 60 A.D. <laughs> yeah, not the 1960s. But, you know, it, so that's an earlier dating of Revelation. Sure. And if Revelation was written pre-70 A.D., well, that changes some yeah. things. But if it was written post-70 A.D., it can't be talking about the fall of Jerusalem. But if it was right. written 65 A.D., well, it could actually absolutely be talking about yeah. the fall of Jerusalem. So, well, but that's but that's a that's a paradigm shift, right? Sure. When for you know my whole life, I heard ninety two, ninety three A.D. and legitimate scholars, not weird people, but like actually, you know, every everyone right. said that. But there's evidence that it could have been written pre seventy eight. I'm not convinced. I might could be. I don't know. You know, but again, it ta- that takes a lot of work and a lot of study. Yeah. And so, even little details like that, that takes a lot of thought and effort and study and research to to determine <laughs> those things. So, and again, I think it's uh, really understanding and studying prophecy is something that can consume you sure. more and, than it should. And to illustrate the impact it can have just on your worldview, we were kind of talking earlier about whether or not you go, this world is a sinking ship, we might as well just bail Abandon on it, it. anyways. <clears throat> The, the two kind of main opposing views on Revelation that I know of end up coming out with 
polar opposite worldviews. Yeah. One is this is a sinking ship. It's going to be it's getting worse judged. and worse and worse and worse. It's only going to get worse. The other one is Christianity will literally fill the earth yeah. and the church is spreading amongst the earth now and it will fill it. So they're literally opposing views of the direction the world will go. Yeah. Because of the so well, it is so it is impactful and some I, of that, just like you were saying. Yeah, some of that is even just in your perspective, sure. right? You could look at the same, you know, two people can look at the same thing. It's like the the classic elephant, right? Four blind men looking at an elephant. One person says it's like a rope. Another person says it's like a fire hose. Another person says it's like a big tree. Mm -hmm. Somebody else says it's like a big <laughs> fan. Well, those are all right. It's just what you're looking at and what you're feeling and, you know, how you're approaching it. Um, or even the, the the Ken Ham, Bill Nye, the big Ken Ham, Bill Nye debate. Yeah. You know, they're looking at the same evidence. But they're looking at it from two radically different perspectives. Sure. And they come to different conclusions. Yeah. So, yeah. It's the same thing with some of the prophecy is how you, you know, how you allow yourself to approach things. Right. And it's, I think it's easy with prophecy to forget that this is all about glorifying God and it's about, it's about Jesus and it's about Christ. And we, it's easy to let that slip out of our radar. Yeah. So what do we have coming up in chapter Three. Chapter three is the golden statue and the fiery furnace. And so throwing the, you know, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The famous story the famous that you trio, always hear as a kid. It's one of, it might be one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, and there's certainly some significance to it. So it's, I've been studying it all week and it's, it's a cool story. Yeah. You know, just the, even the details of what it means and, and what it, what we're pointed to, you know, is, you know, standing firm, you know, the whole, the overall theme of Daniel is, you know, is standing for God in a godless culture. Yeah. And we're going to see a great example of that, of these three men who were, who we saw in chapter one, who were very committed to holiness over compromise. Well, they're really going to be put to the test when this giant 90 foot tall golden statue is put essentially where the Tower of Babel was, mm -hmm. you know, to sort of there. There's there's one in in one sense. It's almost like he's trying to reverse the Tower of Babel, you know, because Babel dispersed everybody. Well, now Nebuchadnezzar's trying to bring them all back together in worship of him. Yeah, you know. So it's just it's it's a really interesting passage, and there's a lot more to it than just they didn't burn up. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the spoiler alert, right? They didn't burn up. What? They survived, but. Reading their attitudes and and really t looking looking at that is is really cool. I'm looking forward to it. We're gonna do the whole chapter. Cool. So, which is weird to do a whole chapter. It seems like we're doing too much, but you kind of have to do the whole chapter because you need to see the whole story. Yeah. So. Well, cool. Looking forward to that. Thank you for uh, listening to this episode of the Next Step Podcast. We will see you next week with an episode about Chapter Three of Daniel. So, thank you for submitting questions. Please do more of that. We will get to as many as we can and address them on the show. So thank you for listening. Thank you, Rob. Yes, thanks for having me. It was All fun. Right. See you later. <laughs>